Netflix released the documentary American Murder, The Family Next Door, about the murders of Shanann, Bella, and Cece Watts. It was well done, but it did make us wonder, why wasn't there more of Nicole Kessinger, Chris's mistress? I mean, why didn't that make the cut? And without that missing piece of the puzzle, like, is it even possible to understand what happened in that case? Let's get into it. She got home really late, about 2 a.m. from the airport when she got back from Arizona. Did you wake up and say, no? No. I, was, I saw her when she got in, but it was really quick just because it was 2 a.m. in the morning. But I saw the kids in the monitor before I left, and that was it. 
Because Celeste, she's just a ball of energy. She's called her Rampage. Because she's like, she's just always, she's got two speeds, go or she's sleeping. And she's always a troublemaker. She's always the one, like, jumping off things, you know, just yelling at you and all kinds of things. And Bella, she's the more calm, cautious, mothering type. And she's, she's more like me. She's more calm. She's, but uh, Celeste has definitely got her mom's personality where she's always just gung-ho, ready to go. Bella was going to start kindergarten next, next Monday. And they, they were just getting ready to start, start back again. I gotta warn you, this part, it's, it's gonna be hard to hear. Well, based on the discovery, police reports, and the letters described in letters to Christopher, here's what actually happened on August 13th and the days leading up to and right after that. So Chris actually murdered his daughters twice. He told Sherilyn Cato that he used their pillows to smother them in their beds, and then he strangled Shanann to death in their room. He said she didn't fight him, but her eyes filled with blood, and he thought she might be praying when she died. He was wrapping her in a sheet when his daughters walked into the room and asked what was wrong with Mommy. He was surprised they were still alive. He told them Shanann wasn't feeling well, and then he dragged her body down the stairs to the garage. He put garbage bags over her head and feet, and he loaded her onto the floor in the back seat of his work truck. Then he told his daughters... Bella and Cece to get in the back. Their mother was at their feet on the floor. They drove almost an hour out to the oil site where he planned to work that day. He knew it was isolated and he knew he'd be alone. Here's a little bit more about what happened when he got out there. This is from the second confession Chris gave the FBI from prison in February 2019. So what happened when you got out there? He told the letters from Christopher Arthur even more than that. He said Shanann was buried face down because that's how she landed when he unwrapped the sheet from around her body. He said he was too angry with her to bother moving her. He shoveled only eight inches of dirt over her and broke a rake trying to cover it up. After the murders, Chris told Cato, all I could feel was now I was free to be with Nikki. Feelings of my love for her was overcoming me. I felt no remorse. The darkness inside of me had won. It was still in me. I thought maybe permanently. I felt evil swallowed up by this thing inside of me. I felt like I could kill anything and be justified for doing it. After the murders, around 10.30 a.m., he was on his phone searching these very unusual terms. A four-star top-secret Aspen Hotel, I guess to take his mistress Nikki to. He called his daughter's school and unenrolled them. He contacted their realtor to put the house up for sale, 
and then he looked up the lyrics to the Metallica song, Battery. He's a big Metallica fan, and of that song, these are the lyrics that, let's just say, probably meant the most to him right then. Pounding out aggression turns into obsession. Cannot kill the battery, cannot kill the family. Battery is found in me. He said later that Nikki had challenged him to look up the lyrics to that song so they could discuss what they meant. Are we supposed to believe that's some kind of coincidence? Also, those oil tanks are called batteries. And then he kept working, just like normal. His wife was in a shallow grave and his daughters were hidden in the oil batteries. But according to the discovery documents, when his co-workers got to the site around 8 a.m.-ish, they all said he was acting just like he always did. The only off things they noticed were minor. Like his car was parked in a strange place. You know, not where someone would normally park out there. And he was dressed a little sloppier than usual. He had one pant leg tucked into his boot and the other one out. He got the first call from Shanann's friend, Nicole, around noon. She was wondering where Shanann was. He told her she took the girls to a play date, but Nicole didn't buy it. Shanann had had a doctor's appointment that morning, and she wanted Nicole to drive her. She wasn't around. It's not at all like her. She called him a few more times, but when he didn't offer any more help, she called the police for a welfare check. And that's when Chris drove back to the house. He left the site around 2-ish. He was arrested on August 15th after failing a lie detector test. The whole thing happened only two days after the murders. According to what criminologist Philip Stinson told People.com, things unfolded so quickly that he was trapped with no alternative but to cooperate with the reporters. I don't think he anticipated that a friend of his wife would so quickly alert authorities to her failing to show up for a scheduled medical appointment and was not at the house on Monday. In that first confession, he told investigators that Shanann smothered the girls, and he strangled her out of rage. He later told Sherilyn Cato that he got the idea to say that from the investigators themselves. I mean, they didn't believe it for a second. The physical evidence told a very different story. On August 16th, Nikki went to the police with her dad to tell them she'd been having an affair with Chris, which they already knew after speaking with Chris and some other Anadarko employees. But before she went in, she deleted all of her texts from him and his contact information. She asked her good friend to delete all the texts she'd sent her about Chris. She looked up Amber Fry, wanted to know how much Amber Fry had made on a book deal and if people hated Amber Fry. And then she searched for information on how or if those deleted text conversations could be retrieved by the police. And only then did she start talking. I think I met him sometime in June. Probably early June. It might have been May. It was just talking at work. It was pretty casual. Um, and uh, he didn't have a wedding ring on his finger. And every time I talked to him, he didn't tell me that he was in a relationship. He didn't even mention his kids right away either. Um, and then one day he told me that he had two kids. I was like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> And uh, so tell me about his kid. That sounded like a sarcastic comment. No, I thought it was kind of cute. I was like, oh, he's a dad. It was like right around Father's Day, too. So whenever that is, is in June? Okay. Yeah. So I'm not good with holidays. He told me he had kids, and then it was Father's Day shortly after okay. that. So that's what I do now. And I was like, I know, I thought it was cute. And then um, he's telling me about him. He's pretty excited about him. And then... Um, children's name or his significant other's name? 
a significant other's name for a while. And then I think he told me his kids' names pretty quick. But to be honest with you, on an exact date of when that happened, I don't know. In February 2018, Chris told the FBI that Nikki, yes, did know that he was married right from the beginning. He thought she probably lied to the police to save face. But did you notice she also said she didn't know his significant other's name or that she was pregnant? But she lied about a lot to save face. And did you catch how she won't say Shanann's name? She keeps calling her her significant other. She won't do it. And here's the very, very strange thing. In the discovery documents, a search of her phone and computer turned up some very suspect items. The most suspect and the most debated are these two searches for Chris and Shanann, one in August 2017 and one in January of 2018, a full year before Shanann was murdered. Very strange. Now, there are two schools of thought on this. The first is that it's a huge indicator that Nicole has something more to say on this subject, and the other is that this is a typo. A reporter from Crime Online tracked down the record supervisor at the Frederick Police Department, and they said, yes, it is a typo. But which one? Searching Chris's name in August of 2017 or searching Shanann's name in January of 2018, eight months before Chris would murder her. To be fair, there are several typos in the discovery documents, like this one, when the date should read Monday, August 13th, but as you can see instead, it says Monday, August 12th. So, the typo or not, this is the part that makes it a little uh, disturbing. When Crime Online asked if the district attorney's office planned to dig a little deeper into the fact that Nicole might have blatantly lied about how long she'd known Chris, even potentially pursuing him for up to a year before the murders, they said this. Chris Watts' guilty plea precluded any need to further probe the results of the forensic analysis of Nicole's phone. We did not get to the point in our investigation of attempting to independently verify that or not because Chris Watts pled guilty. Where that anomaly in the data comes from, I can't answer it for you. I don't know the answer to it. Hmm. Discuss amongst yourselves. Now, when you meet a guy you like, you check them out on Facebook, right? Well, let's assume Nikki's telling the truth and that she was first attracted to Chris in June 2018. So take a look at these work emails between them starting in early June. As you can see, they escalated their friendship pretty quickly. Certainly by the time they started having sex, only couple weeks after this exchange, a quick glance on Facebook would tell you if your new boyfriend was lying to you about leaving his wife, which is what she said he said to her, and she was lying. And Shanann posted constantly. She told the world how much she loved her husband almost every day on Facebook. Let's take a quick look at the events of that summer that led up to this, but with a focus on Chris and Nikki's relationship. Hi. <laughs> It's me. I miss your face. I was just calling to say hi. By June 14th, Chris had her phone number programmed into his phone. On June 27th, Shanann took the girls and went to stay with her parents in North Carolina for five weeks. That is when Chris and Nikki's relationship got very intense, very fast. Nikki told police she went to Chris's house for the first time on the 4th of July to set up his diet and weight loss and exercise goals. She said he invited her to his house, he cooked lunch, they ate, and she left. Eh, that wasn't exactly true. 
Chris told the FBI in February that he actually spent the night at Nikki's house on July 3rd, and they woke up together on the 4th with a lot of missed calls from Shanann on his phone. No. He told Nikki he was going home to talk to his wife, and that made Nikki mad. He said this was one of those times he had to talk her off a cliff and reassure her. She ended up coming to his house anyway, and that's when they had lunch and talked about his meal plan. And then they went back to her house. Chris had been gradually distancing himself from Shanann, and she'd noticed. On July 14th, Nikki was at his house again, but that led to another time that he had to reassure her. It wasn't exactly like she said to the police, you know, that she was encouraging him to work things out with Shanann. But instead, she was coming off as sort of the exact opposite. Chris said she told him she didn't want kids, but on that day, she told him she wanted to give him his first son. That's when Chris told the letters to Christopher Arthur he started to think about killing his family so he could give Nicole what she wanted and be with her. He asked her for help finding a new apartment, and she said she was helping him do that. It's been asked, suggested, wondered about what else she might have been helping with. On July 18th, she sent him this infamous bikini shot that he had hidden on his phone in that secret calculator app. Chris knew he was going to have to go to North Carolina to see his family and his parents for a week on July 31st. So he and Nikki took one last vacation together. On July 28th, they spent the weekend camping at the Great Sand Dunes National Park. I'm having a wonderful time. You mean a lot to me. And I'm glad that you're having a blast. I am so out of breath. On July 31st, Chris flew out to North Carolina to spend a week with Shanann and the girls. Before he left, Nikki texted him this. Take this time and try to heal things with your wife and enjoy time with your family. But then when he got there, he texted her, I can't call, just text. She responded, why not? Are you with her? So much for no pressure. So Chris tried to make her happy by not having sex with Shanann that whole week. He's basically switching from one woman he feels controlled by to another woman that wants to control him. The first night he was there, he slipped Shanann 80 milligrams of oxycodone by telling her it was something to help with her headache. He told Sarah Cato that he wanted Shanann to miscarry the baby that they had named Nico. He thought it would be easier to be with Nikki if Shanann wasn't pregnant. But where did he get the oxy? He said he would never reveal that. What seems to suggest that he must have gotten it from someone close to him, someone he wanted to protect and still does. While Chris was away, Nikki was making plans of her own. Police discovered internet searches for wedding dresses, Shanann watch, and phrases like, man I'm having an affair with says he will leave his wife and marrying your mistress. This is definitely not what she suggested to the police. Just doing a search for Shanann watch would have pulled up her Facebook and you would have seen the entire history of the relationship, including the fact that she was pregnant, which if you remember, did try to say that she didn't know about until Chris was arrested and the media said so. Not so much. In yet another phone search conducted by authorities, investigators found searches for sexual videos, positions, tons of searches for Shanann. Chris told Sherilyn Cato that when he got back into town, he went to see Nikki and she gave him a key to her place, something Nikki never told the FBI. That key was the final push he needed to get rid of Shanann. According to letters from Christopher, he left Nikki's house with the key to her house in his pocket, and he met Shanann at her ultrasound appointment. 
that he could already feel himself completely uninterested in this child or in her. He was already starting to think about killing them. On August 8th, he deleted his Facebook account. He told Shanann he wanted to take a break from social media, but then, in her police interview, Nikki let it slip that she had told Chris to shut it down. In fact, she was so adamant about it that when he told her he'd closed it, Nikki asked him if he'd actually scrubbed it by sending a specific request to Facebook. I do not know about that, do you? Chris didn't either, so Nikki thinks she just deactivated it. Later, Chris told police he'd done it so Nicole's friends couldn't look him up and tell her that his wife was not acting like a woman who was leaving her husband. Clearly, at that time, he did not know that Nicole had done plenty of searches on her own. On August 9th, Nan left for Arizona, and Chris was already thinking of exactly how to murder his family. He sent this picture to Shanann, saying Bella had done this with the sheet. But later, he admitted it was him, and he sent it to her to get her reaction. August 10th, Chris volunteered to check out a maintenance issue on the oil tank known as Survey 319 on Monday morning, August 13th. At that time, his boss didn't think anything of it because Chris was a hard worker, but that site was so far away, no one really ever put their hand up to go there. Clearly, Chris is already formulating a plan. On August 11th, he hired a babysitter for the girls, and he went to dinner with Nikki. He told Shanann he was going to a Colorado Rockies game with a friend from work. But later that night, she got an alert on her phone that their joint account had been used at this lazy dog bar and grill for more than $60, like a lot more than one person might spend on themselves there. For the first time, Shanann was seriously considering that Chris might have a mistress. Her friends say that wasn't something she really believed before that night. Chris always paid for dates with Anna Darko gift cards, but that night, she just didn't seem to care. Even Nikki noticed, and she told the police about it, but she said to them that she thought it was further evidence that Shanann had insisted on moving forward with the divorce, despite Chris's best efforts to work things out. Well, she and Chris must have been celebrating because at 9.30 that morning, she spent 45 minutes Googling how to prepare for anal sex. On August 12th, Chris took the girls to a birthday party, and he texted with Nikki most of the day. Also on August 12th, Nikki was having this text conversation with her good friend. Just be warned, it's a little raunchy. Been kind of hanging out with a guy recently, keeping it a secret. Dude loves to eat. <laughs> Never met a man who does till now. I just let it happen. LOL. Where did you meet this man? Feel like every dude I meet has kids these days, and if they don't, they have commitment issues or some BS like Sean. What's the guy's name? Kids are cute. It's a package deal, though. The fact that he takes care of his kids is a good thing, I think. He's all about his kids. That's cool. How old are they? I just feel like I will always be in second place, like he's been there, done that. Don't tell nobody. I haven't made my mind up on him yet. It's the best sex I've ever had. I'm hooked. Now, that night, Chris fed the girls and tucked them in for the last time. He said it to himself as he walked away. He FaceTimed Nikki, and they had phone sex and talked from almost 9 to 11 o'clock that night. On August 13th, three hours later, Shanann got home from her business trip. It's around 2 a.m. There was Chris waiting to kill her. He told his pen pal that he didn't even think about getting a divorce. At that time, he thought killing all of them would mean the end to his money problems, the fights with his parents about her and the kids, the fights with Shanann, and he wouldn't have to worry about his kids. 
anyone else thinking he was a bad guy if he just left her for another woman. If she just disappeared, none of that would be an issue, and he could build a new life with Nikki. On the morning of August 13th, in the Netflix documentary, the producers included one interesting comment from a neighbor. She said she saw a gray truck near the Watts house the morning of the murders, and she knew it wasn't Chris's. His work truck was big and brown, and Nikki drove a Toyota 4Runner truck. Not sure what color it was. Interestingly, the discovery documents note that Nikki's cell pinged in Frederick at 6.15 a.m. on August 13th. She lived in North Glen, which is about 20 minutes away, so what's she doing in Frederick? That day, August 13th, she said Chris texted her to say he was busy, but they mostly chatted like normal during the workday until 3.45 p.m. when he texted her to say his family was gone and he wanted to know what she thought he should do with the wedding ring that Shanann had left behind. Nikki suggested he pawn it. By the time Chris was arrested and she had a couple of police interviews under her belt, Nikki was busy doing damage control as much as she could. On August 21st, Nikki talked to investigators again over the phone. She told them she'd been trying to get Chris to fix his relationship with Shanann. She told him she barely knew him, and she asked the FBI how she could change her name. She mentioned that she might need to lay low for at least a couple of years. Five, five, three, three or five. On August 23rd, she was fired from Tasman Geosciences. That's the company she worked for that hired her out to Anna Darko. She moved out of town, probably did change her name, and maybe even her appearance, because there's been no mention of any sightings of her at all. And because Chris confessed and pled guilty right away, she never actually testified against him. So she's probably not officially on a witness protection program. And the possibility that she might know more than she said or that her statements weren't totally accurate, that was never really probed all that carefully. So would Chris have killed his family eventually? Maybe for the next girl he took a fancy to or maybe just because? Nikki says yes. Chris says no. He says he hasn't spoken to her since his arrest, but he still wants one last conversation for closure and the chance to apologize. She's refused any outward sign of communication with him, but Chris has told multiple sources that every time he gets a piece of mail, he hopes it's from her, writing to him under a code name. Thanks for discussing this with me today. I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments, and if you like getting all the crime in almost half the time, well, it's a bit longer than normal, then please subscribe and hit the bell to get a nudge for a new show every Sunday and Wednesday. I'll see you soon. received a call from Nicole Atkinson, the best friend of Shannon Watts. She had arranged to drive Shannon into town that same day for a pregnancy checkup, but there was no answer when she knocked at the door, nor any response to her text messages or phone calls. After noticing her shoes were still at the front door, she became concerned and called 911. Nicole? Yes. Uh, what's going on? So, my friends, um, we were out of town for a business trip this weekend. Alright. And I dropped her off at 2 o'clock this morning. She's 15 weeks pregnant. She wasn't feeling well, and she had a doctor's appointment this morning at 9, and I told her to let me know if she needed me to take her. She's got two little girls. I've called, I've texted, 
her car's in the garage, her shoes she wears every single day by the front door. How you doing? Have you seen your neighbors today? No? Okay. What's Chris's phone number? Chris's phone number is... Hey, Chris, Officer Coonrod, pretty police department. Pretty good. So, do you have any idea where your wife is? Right. Well, my concern is her car's here. They're saying she is diabetic. I don't want her if she's upstairs and can't respond. Okay. How far out are you? Okay. All right. He said like five minutes. It's not a sure sign of guilty conduct, yet the fact that Chris made the officer wait for his return would have most likely alerted some minor suspicion. In normal circumstances, a husband receiving a call from the police saying they were concerned about the safety of their pregnant wife and children, in most cases, would have given them permission to immediately kick the door down. It's a truly somber awareness to know that the man stepping out of the car had only a very short time ago dumped his infant daughter's body into an oil tank and buried his pregnant wife in a shallow grave. John, how you doing? How's it going? So this is the only vehicle she would have? Only one that she would drive? familiar routine for anyone checking for someone's presence inside a house, whether it be an emergency or otherwise, is to immediately call out to them for instantaneous reassurance. Chris remains silent, but instead feels the need to examine his wife's car before suddenly sneaking through the internal garage door. He then disappears for one minute and seven seconds before letting the neighbors and police officer inside. Only Chris will know what he carried out during that time period. But it's safe to assume that his curious behavior was not going unnoticed, made evident by the unsettled gaze of Nicole as he opens the door. There were multiple key moments captured from inside the house, which may not have been noticed immediately by the officer, but would have no doubt been gathered by forensics upon further investigation. The most overt peculiarity was Chris's interaction with his phone. The guise of his thumb movement would have given the impression he was texting someone, which would have seemed very peculiar, as the normal response would be to frantically call people rather than text given the circumstances. Hindsight gives us a clearer picture of Chris's introversion, which is that he was most likely using his phone to avoid eye contact and progressive dialogue with the officer. What time do you leave the day? What time do you leave there? I'm not here. I usually leave between 5.30 and 6.00. Alright. Well, Shannon, here then? Additionally, we are presented with the subtle cues of Chris's forethought cover story, being that his wife simply ran off with the kids after a breakdown in the marriage. All I know is blankets are gone. Um, they're blankets they sleep with, they don't leave anywhere without them.
The rest of Chris's conduct could be analyzed and dissected in various ways, and it would be easy to pick at certain oddities in body language and link them with signs of guilt. Yet, without the hindsight we have now, his behavior could just as easily be linked with an innocent man who is understandably concerned and frantic over the disappearance of his family. His very conservant neighbor, however, had the perceptual advantage of knowing Chris on a semi-personal level, and could analyze his kinesics in a far more accurate manner than the police officer. You just want to go talk to him? I'm going to get his info real quick. just after the moment he had shown both Chris and the officer his surveillance footage of that same morning, capturing only Chris leaving the house after loading multiple unidentified things into his truck. Shannon and the kids could have left through the back entrance, this was an extremely detrimental piece of evidence and would have no doubt been extolled by forensics and made Chris an immediate crime suspect. The following day, Chris for some bizarre reason agreed to be interviewed by two separate news stations where he came across as extremely unimpassioned and detached from the alarming nature of the situation. Like when I got home yesterday, it was like a ghost town. Like, she wasn't here. Kids weren't here. I have no idea like where they went. Right now it's you got canine units, the sheriff's department. Everybody's like they're they're doing their best right now to figure out like if they can get a scent. If she wasn't here, like where did she go? Like once I got here, it was like, all right, who can I call? I called her three times, texted her about three times just to say, you know, what, what's going on? Like if she's vanished, like I want her back so bad. I want those kids back so bad. Right now, I don't even want to just like throw anything out there. Like I hope that she's somewhere safe right now. And with the kids last night, I wanted I, I wanted that knock on the door. I wanted to see that. I wanted to see the kids running, running, just, just barrel rushing me to see me a hug and knock me on the ground. That's why last night was horrible. I couldn't do it. it I just, I'm hoping that somebody sees something or somebody knows something and comes forward. Shannon, Bella, Celeste, if you're out there, just just come back. Like if somebody has her, just. Please bring her back. I need to see everybody. I need to see everybody again. This house is not complete with, without anybody here. Please bring her back. This could have been construed as shock trauma, where a person will turn numb and retreat into themselves as a means of escape. Yet the viewers watching this live from home were probably thinking what we as the retrospective audience already know. He was called in for questioning four hours later. Thank you. 
the oldest and most commonly used techniques is for the interrogator to sit between the door and the suspect. This is for the purpose of heightening the feelings of isolation and dependence. It's an indirect subliminal message, letting Chris know that the only way out of that room is through the detective. It's an excellent tool for stripping away confidence, thus increasing the telling signs and body language when information is fabricated. 4 a.m., this one model goes off to work, and I see this kid dress, brush my teeth, everything I do upstairs. Okay. About 4 15, that's when I get back to the spot right in the bed next to her and start having a conversation with her about having the house, the house up for sale and talking about it. Except, like, actually going, proceeding with the separation. Okay. And obviously, it gets pretty emotional. Like, we're talking about, you know, like, we felt this, the disconnection was there, like, falling out of love. And trying to stay together, maybe just for the kids' sake, but we're realizing that doing like our homework, it's not, most of the time, that's not going to work. Yeah. So that's when I got home. I opened the garage door and we went inside the house and looked everywhere, Shanann, Bella, Celeste, no work be found. 911, what is your emergency? I'm in Prospect Park right now um, by the playground. There's a man here. He just pulled out a gun. Okay, ma'am. We're sending someone right away. You need to go to the police? Yeah. Sent away rings on the nightstand. The phone's still on the couch. The purse is still there. The medicine for the kids is still there. The car and the car keys are still there. And there's no sign of it anywhere. Okay. I was just hoping that, I'm going to let all the lights on in the house. I was hoping that I'd get a knock on the door. I needed to see her face like 
sharp and sudden change of angle from baseline questioning to direct confrontation would normally make an innocent person refute or at least challenge the statement. There would also be a brief pause, as they would need time to process the allegation due to its complexity. A guilty individual would already be in a defensive state of mind, and would normally respond in a hastily modus. Instead of refuting the remark, they would accept it, but try and explain its actuality in a defensive manner. But it sounds like Nicole was more worried. Yeah, because like, most of, like, if she hasn't texted me, like, I understand that, okay. like, sometimes that happens. Okay. But for her not to get back to her okay. group, direct failed group, okay. that was very unorthodox. Okay. So then they're, they're at home, um, police officers there. Mm -hmm. um, then walk me through that. So have to go through the house. This is what is known as the pause technique. After the suspect answers a question, the interrogator will remain silent while maintaining eye contact. This physical demeanor gives off the subtle cue that he expects more information to be divulged and may already know more than the suspect realizes. I'm not sure, like, what I could do to, like, to make people believe that, just because if they, if they knew we were having marital discord, they would all 
truthful individual will normally respond to this question with a question, such as, why are you asking me that? Or, what's going on here? They will often protest the aggressive nature of the Inquisition, or give a short and forceful response. Because I'm a very trustworthy person, and the people that do know me, they know how I'm a calm person, I am not an argumentative person, I am a person who is never going to be abusive or physical in any kind of relationship. I will never harm my kids, I will never harm my wife. You can talk to me, and you can talk to any of my friends, any of her friends. They know me. They know I'm a low-key guy that's quiet. I'm, I'm not about confrontation. I'm not about anything that elevates to that level. I mean, so like if someone like yells at me, screams at me, I just take it and I just try to get it by the wayside and get it back to where it's cool. Like just a cool conversation to where like none of that, none of that gets to that height because I am not that person. I've never been that person.
This is what is known as a behavior-provoking question. An innocent person will usually give what is known as a draconian response. They will immediately respond with the harshest sentence possible for the crime they are falsely being accused of committing. A deceptive individual will often give an equivocating response. This means that they will fragmentize and divert from the question to a certain degree as a means to avoid responding to the query in its entirety. They're going to come home safe, correct? When you find the guy. When we find the guy, they're going to come home. Why is it prison? Would be the, that's, what I would, that's what I would think with two kids that are involved. What if he hurt them? But they thought, I'm not sure if like, that penalty is even used as a use in Colorado. I'm not even sure what is. Okay. Um, I mean, like, if these kids are not alive, like, there's no, there's nothing you could do to, to cope with that, to make me cope with that, if those kids are not okay. Can, can we keep talking about some complicated things? Sure. Some things are going to make you uncomfortable? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. You've done very good in talking to me about this really hard conversation you guys had. Okay. Very good. That's sometimes hard. Sometimes someone in your position says, uh, doesn't want to tell me about that. Because please go help me find my kids, and you don't need to know about my, my marriage argument, okay? So I gotta say, you've done very good at that, um, and I need you to keep doing that. So I need to ask you about um, your marriage and uh, infidelity. Okay, tell me about it. Uh, I have never cheated on my wife. Okay. And I fully suspect she has never done that to me. The interrogator was already aware that Chris was cheating on his wife with a woman by the name of Nicole Kessinger. He had handed over his phone earlier on this interview for what he thought was for the purpose of going through his and his wife's mutual contacts to look for potential suspects. Judging by Chris's bold-faced denial, it's safe to assume he deleted all of his correspondence with Nicole beforehand. Yet he was most likely unaware that the FBI have programs that can recover every single piece of digital exchange sent from a device even long after it's deleted. Highly trained investigator over here, right? I see pictures of you from a few years ago, mm -hmm. and I see you standing before me now. Okay, okay. you've gotten pretty fit. Okay. You can imagine when guys start cheating or want to cheat, that's what happens. Yes, so tell me about it. So I did not cheat on my wife. Okay. What do I do to help you walk out of this room and not look like the person who's responsible?
There's nothing I can say to a room full of police officers that's going to convince them that you have nothing to do with this. You know what they think. I know what all they call Yeah. Here's a guy who didn't call 911, who was woke wife up at a ridiculous hour because he was so guilty about something that he had to get it off his chest and say, I don't love you anymore, I'm leaving you. That didn't go well. Okay, so what happened? She told me she wanted me to wake her up before I left. That's why I didn't just wake her up, like, just to tell her this. Like, I woke her up. That's what she wanted to do, and we talked. Like, usually at 4 a.m. I wake up, I go down and work out. I wanted to talk to her about this. I love these girls. I love these girls so much. And this picture right here, Celeste and Bella, those are my life. I helped make those kids. There's nothing in my life that means more to me than these kids. Nothing. Kids, that's, that's your life. That's your lifeline. That's everything. Like, you make kids, they come first before anything. Kids, spouse, family. That's what it's always been. Nothing you've told me tonight makes sense. Nothing you've told me tonight feels like the truth. Can we start over? Sure. Tonight's been pretty intense, I can imagine. How are you feeling? <laughs> I've, I've slept like two hours last night, so I'm like running on empty right now, but I can see it. So why don't I do this? I'm sure you don't mind if we take a break for the night. Um, I'm sure that you are um, feeling some of the pressure from me. Okay. I'm going to commit to you that we're not going to stop working until we find them. Okay. Okay. And I want to commit to you that there is going to come a time when you're going to feel this pressure from other people. I'm not the only one who thinks that there's a possibility you have something to do with this. Like another FBI agent, like, pressure, like, this, like, everyone. Okay. Everyone, Chris. Okay. The interrogator is clearly receptive to Chris's anxiety and endeavors to amplify this emotion before ending the interview. He wants to inflate Chris's apprehension as much as possible for the looming polygraph test that approaches the following day. Tonight, when you go home, one of two things going to happen. You're going to pass out because you're so tired. Okay. That's probably not going to be what happens. Your head's gonna go race, okay? So tonight when you lay down and your head starts racing, there's gonna be things that come to your mind, okay? This always happens, always. It's very natural. You're gonna say, I don't know why he asked me that, okay? You're gonna say, screw him, how dare he accuse me, okay? You're gonna say, I wonder if they've thought of this, okay? And then you're gonna say, I probably should have told him something, or this or that, okay? Those are the most common things. Um, when those thoughts come to your head, won't you call me? And those are beautiful kids. Those kids have a good dad. And I know it. Let's just see a picture of someone for them. Yeah. It's a better one. But this is 
discourse from the officer could be construed as the reframing technique, where an interrogator will try and shift the suspect's view of themselves from negative to positive as a means to lightening the iniquity of their crimes and increasing the chances of a confession. However, this is more likely what is known as passive accusation, where the interrogator is almost certain of the suspect's guilt and indirectly accuses and in some manner indignifies the suspect. This is made evident by the high praises the officer gives to Chris for extremely trivial deeds. A lot of dads don't get second pairs of clothes and cook eggs and give them snacks at night. You know, a lot of, a lot of men, that's woman for it, right? Uh, I don't like to get involved, but you're not that kind of guy. Okay. So can we say that tomorrow at 11 o'clock? Sure. We can do a polygraph? Sure. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you coming in tonight. Mm-hmm. All right. Can you use my coffee? Um, this is Tammy. Did you meet Tammy yesterday? No, I okay. was Yeah, I know. I'll explain what that is here a little bit. Maybe you don't have to worry. It's-